we're into uh, summertime. It's the summer schedule, huh? Vacations and, and all those sorts of things. So people come, people go. We're uh, going to continue in Matthew this morning. There's just no way to uh, avoid that because it bears down heavily upon me. And I'll share the fruit of that with you this morning. But as we get started together this morning, I was been thinking about uh, summertime, and uh, often during the summertime, uh, there are, historically, it's a time for retreats, Christian retreats. People go off, uh, either men or women or youth or sometimes family retreats. We've got something happening here uh, later next month, I believe it is. It's not an official thing, but I understand that half the congregation is, uh, is uh, going to the beach and spend a week together, and so that's really good. Blessings on them, and uh, they'll miss uh, something really good. I've got a really good sermon planned. <laughs> I've been, been holding it back for about six months, just uh, waiting for that. So uh, you snooze, you lose. You know, that's how it goes. But just thinking about uh, Christian camps and, and that sort of thing, you know, the Christian camping movement is a kind of an interesting phenomena. It began in the 19th century. And it grew out of the revivalistic uh, movements in American Protestantism, kind of the frontier, originally camp meetings, and then it, it grew from there into where people would get away for a mountaintop experience. How many of you have ever had a mountaintop experience? Huh? Yeah, a lot of hands. What's the problem with a mountaintop experience usually? Yeah, you got to come back down again, huh? Isn't that a bummer? You're up there, and you're with the Lord, and, and it just, it's a really sweet time. And there's, um, it's true, there's no denying that. And it has its place, to be sure. But often we do, we come back down, and, and the mountaintop that we experience, that, that the presence of God that we experience there, we, it tends to fade. Well, I, I want to look with you this morning as you open your Bibles to Matthew 17, into a mountaintop experience that uh, never faded to a mountaintop experience in the lives of uh, some of the followers of Christ that they never got over, never got over. I've entitled our message this morning, and it is just part one of a, of a two-part message because this, uh, this uh, vein here, this uh, mother load is way too rich to try to uh, plumb its depths in one week, so we'll be back at it at least a two and maybe beyond that. But anyway, we're calling this a Glory on the Mountain. Glory on the mountain, and we're in Matthew chapter 17, and we are, we are looking at what is commonly known as the transfiguration, the transfiguration, and in this, uh, this event in the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ it was a significant event. It is unlike any other event in his public ministry. It stands out. It is uh, recorded for us in three of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and so together, each one contributing something to the overall understanding. When you put them all together, we have a, a more rounded picture of this incredible event. It is a very uh, mysterious event, to be sure. As you begin to work your way through this text and, and to think about it, you start to ask yourself questions, many of which you just can't answer. So there are, there are lots of uh, very intriguing questions that, that revolve around here. I'll explore a few of them with you along the way, and frequently the answer to the question will be, gee, I don't know, the text doesn't say. 
but, uh, but it is interesting to look at those questions. But what I want to do just structure-wise this morning as we begin together is, is to say that there are at least three, and we'll, three's a good number, so we'll say that, there are at least three uh, mysteriously tantalizing aspects. How do you like that? Mysteriously tantalizing aspects of Jesus' glory revealed in this dramatic account. And, and I want to look at them with an eye towards boosting our faith when it is faltering. When our faith begins to falter, this particular uh, event can be used in the Spirit of God to bolster our faith as well. So to set it up, though, we need to, um, we need to do a little historical context. If we're going to take a look at the what's and the why's, we need a kind of a running start at it. So Pastor Vince, I'm appreciative of him uh, finishing uh, the majority of chapter 16. He, uh, some of you observed he didn't cover verse 28, and uh, he didn't do that because I asked him not to do that, because I needed verse 28 to uh, bridge into what I want to talk to you about beginning this morning. But just in terms of review, to get our, our minds ready to understand this, this most uh, tantalizing, this most mysterious, this most glorious event called the Transfiguration let us just be reminded of what is going on here in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is uh, located in the last six months, kind of the beginning of the final six months of the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is at the end or, or following his 18-month greater Galilean ministry where he had spent a year and a half traveling from village to village in the northern part of Israel, continually by both miracle and word, demonstrating clearly, unimpeachably, that he is the Messiah sent of God, King of Israel, the one long anticipated in the words of the ancient and holy prophets. And yet, the people would not receive him. The leadership of the nation not only would not receive him, but saw him as a threat and set themselves to first discrediting his ministry and then eventually organizing themselves and seeking to eliminate him for what the threat that they saw him to be. Finally, Jesus has that, that uh, uh, dramatic showdown with them that Matthew records in chapter 12 where uh, they attribute the work that he has done that can only have been done by the Spirit of God to the devil himself, and thus basically blaspheming what's called the Holy Spirit, that is attributing the work of the Spirit of God to the work of Satan. At that point, Jesus says, it's over for you, there's nothing left for you, no forgiveness beyond this. You have rejected the light that has been given you, you have turned to the darkness, there is nothing left. And from that point on, he begins to move outside the nation. You remember, we looked at this. He, moved to Sire, or he went to Tyre and Sidon in the north and Phoenicia along the Mediterranean Sea. He, he briefly comes back and he moves again north and to the east, and this time to the district known as Caesarea Philippi. This is a Roman area. This is an area that is, that is um, uh, mostly pagan. It is an area that lies outside of, most probably most significantly, lies outside of the political boundaries and authorities of, uh, of Herod the Tetrarch. That puts Jesus outside of the reach of the authorities and enables him to continue ministry with his eye to Jerusalem in six months for the Passover and his crucifixion. It keeps him away from a premature rest 
and possible death. And so he, he moves with his disciples to that area. Verse 13, chapter 16, it says, They came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. While in that district, Jesus continues to, to uh, um, steal away to pray, often to be alone with the Father. And uh, while there, he continues to query the, the disciples, to question the disciples as to who do people say that I am. And they offer him various alternatives. And then he pops the final question to them. It's, and we talked about this. It's like the final exam, as it were. And he says, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter, under inspiration of the Spirit of God, comes forth with the most amazing confession of faith. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, in verse 16. Jesus quickly commends Peter for it and then says to him, Peter, only the Spirit of God could have revealed such powerful truth to you. Jesus goes on to say that upon this reality that I am the Christ, that I am the Son of the living God, that is that I am the God-man long foretold in the prophets, now here among you, based on that truth, I am going to build my church. I'm going to build my church on the gates of Hades, that is death itself. Not my death, not your death, not death in any shape or form can overcome the church that I am building. All looks to be going well at this point. And then Jesus throws them a curveball. He throws them a curveball in verse 21, doesn't he? It says, from that time Jesus began to speak to them. And Vincent did a good job talking about the divine must that he must go to Jerusalem, that he must suffer these things from the elders and chief priests, that he must be killed, and that he must be raised up the third day, and they will have nothing to do with this truth. This is outside of, of what they can handle. This is, this is coming at them in a way that, that they cannot receive. And so Peter, taking Jesus aside uh, to rebuke him and set the master straight, uh, says, you know, heaven, God forbid it, Lord, never will happen to you. Peter then turns and says to Satan, or to uh, Peter, get behind me, Satan. Pretty amazing, pretty amazing. Following that, Jesus begins to lay out for them the cost of discipleship, what it will mean to follow this one whose popularity looks like it is going in this direction, but in reality it is going this way that his popularity is superficial, that the crowds that only a matter of a month or two before in John 6 were seeking to make him king by force, in reality want nothing to do with who he really is and what he is really about, and they will quickly turn on him. And so to follow him is not going to be an, an easy ride into the kingdom. In fact, just the opposite. It is, it is to, to sign oneself up for a life of difficulty a life of suffering, a life of discipleship. Count the cost. What will you wager for your own soul? Now you can imagine, I think you can imagine, what it must have been like to be those disciples. Their, their five senses tell them the kingdom is going to be here any moment. All the wonders that the Old Testament has talked about are right around the corner. I mean, the message for the last 18 months has been, repent for the kingdom of heaven is 
at hand. A wonderful kingdom of peace and and prosperity and righteousness. And they're going to have a part to play, a place to play in this. And so everything they see, everything they hear, says to them, it's going really, really, really well. And then Jesus says to them, I'm going to die. I'm going to be persecuted. But I'm going to rise again. And if you're going to follow me, you're not going to slide right into the kingdom. You're going to suffer. Later he will say, you will die. They were probably as silent as you are. Maybe more so. This is not what they thought. This is not what they had signed up for. Even giving them the, 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 the best motives, the, the benefit of the doubt, they cannot wrap their minds around the reality of a reigning glorious Messiah and a suffering servant. How can you reign and die? It's incongruous. They're at a crisis moment. Their faith is faltering. This whole messianic enterprise could go off the rails right here and now. And so Jesus acts. And he acts in, in a way that is, that is, as we say, that, that, is, that is unlike anything in his, in his three and a half year public ministry. There is nothing like this that compares to this. He says to them in verse 28 of chapter 16, truly, no kidding around here, truly, absolutely, I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, that's more like it. That's what we wanted to hear. The kingdom. It's at, it's at hand. That's what you've said. And now, now you're saying to us, in, in the moment of our, of our agony, the moment of our confusion, the moment of our grief, you're saying to us, I'm not kidding you. Some of you standing here are not going to die. You're not going to taste death. That's just a euphemism for death. You're not going to die until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. What does that mean? This, is, uh, this verse, by the way, is um, one of those verses in Matthew's gospel that generates a lot of paper and ink. There, there seems like there is no end to the suggestion as to what he is talking about. You're not going to die. Some of you are not going to die. He's talking to the 12 disciples. The 12 disciples, the final disciple is John. He dies in in the mid-90s, let's say. So Jesus is true to his word. So, So some of you, so it's John and, you know, others, and of course, 
anyway, John and others, not going to die until they see the Son of Man come in his kingdom. And so, so to take that at its face value is, is, to, is to talk about the reality that the, the kingdom must have come. At least that's the direction that a lot of people go with this. And, and so what they say to us is, is that the kingdom is here now. We're in it. And, and, and we're in it because Jesus said we would be in it. In 1628. Now, when did it come? Well, that's another interesting question. Some say, well, it, it, it came when he was resurrected. Others say, well, no, it wasn't quite at his resurrection, but it came at Pentecost. Others say, well, no, really, it didn't come until AD 70 and the destruction of the temple. I mean, Jesus is clearly saying that some of his disciples are not going to die before they see the Messiah in his kingdom. Interestingly, uh, the, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, uh, their, their approach is to say, we are the kingdom. And so it came and we're it. That's an approach. Not a good one, but it is an approach. So what does it mean? Are we in the kingdom? As a, as a kingdom that, that was long promised in the Old Testament apostles and prophets, or not apostles, but prophets, is, is it here? Are we in it? Is this it? By the way, if this is it, I want my money back. <laughs> well, no, you see, David, it's a spiritual kingdom, and, you know, What is he talking about? I'd like to suggest to you that the answer is actually uh, incredibly plain. It is, uh, it is like when I go to the refrigerator to find something <laughs> and uh, stand there with the doors open and say, Honey, where is the... She says, in the refrigerator. Yeah, but where? Right in front of you. Yeah, that's normally where it is. Like, pretty much right at eye level, right in the center. That's where it would be. I'd like to suggest to you that the, the answer to the question that is, that is raised here in verse 28 of chapter 16 is, is that plain? It's like the mayonnaise jar right in the middle of the refrigerator. And then it, it, the answer is in the context right here. Right here. Jesus promised that some of his disciples would not die until they saw the kingdom, the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. I'd like to suggest to you that he fulfills the promise six days later. Six days later. It's unfortunate the way uh, Matthew's uh, gospel is broken up in chapter breaks. Now, we're, uh, we praise God for chapter breaks. They, they came in in the early 13th century. Uh, the uh, the uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, Stephen Langton, 
is the one who uh, developed the scheme that, that became most common and that we use today. And so the, the, the breaks in the, in the, uh, in the scrolls that, that designate chapters are exceedingly helpful. It would be really hard for me to say, open your scroll and, you know, and, and find the word Armain, and that's where we're going to start. It's about two-thirds of the way through the scroll, you know, second word from the left. No. So chapter breaks are exceedingly helpful to find our way around the text, and we're thankful to God for them, but they are not inspired. They are the work of men. And in this case, we've got a bad one. We've got one in a, in a place where it doesn't belong. And, and, and what that means is, is that most of us were conditioned to read our Bible from beginning of chapters to end of chapters, which is really not a great idea, if I can just say that. This is really not a great idea. We ought to read our Bible from beginning of thoughts to ends of thoughts, to, from beginnings of, of uh, narrative sections to the ends of that narrative section. Because when we read chapter to chapter, we occasionally will run into this, and it can really skew the way we understand this, the Word of God. So we come to the end of chapter 16, verse 28, we break, and, uh, and then we come back later and we begin chapter 17, and we miss the reality that, that these, you know, chapter 16, verse 28, chapter 17, verse 1 are actually next to each other. I know your Bible's got a big, big white space there, but it doesn't belong. They're like next to each other. And Mark and Luke, it's, it's right. So, you know, I don't know what was wrong with Stephen, you know, the archbishop. He got two of the three correct. Because in Mark and Luke, the text is broken properly. But here in Matthew, it's not. And it has generated a lot of problems. And I'm, I'm kind of playing with it a little bit, being, trying to be a little, a little bit lighthearted towards it. But it is serious. It is serious. We should be reading 28 into 17. And it flows. And when, and when one does that, the answer is, as I say, it's like the mayonnaise jar in the center of the refrigerator. This is not hard to figure out. So we're talking about the transfiguration. Some of you standing here will not die until you see the Son of Man transfigured before you. Transfigured before you. What is the purpose of the transfiguration? That's a good question. We need, to, we need to, I guess, start with maybe. What is the purpose of the transfiguration? Why this event? I think the purpose is, is twofold. Maybe with a, with a primary and a secondary. I'll give you the, the secondary purpose first. I can reverse it. We'll just go one, two, but two is more important than one, I think. But here's number one. Uh, Jesus is, is dealing publicly now among his disciples. And it's not the first time the idea occurred to him, to be sure. Being as steeped in the Old Testament as he was and knowing he was headed to the cross. But now he's talking about it a lot. And, and when, we, when we think about the Lord Jesus Christ, we, we need to be very careful that we don't look at him as some sort of, of avatar, some sort of a robotic individual. You know, he's God, and he is. Very God, as the Chalcedian formula would say. God of very God. But 
that reality should not push us into a, into a direction where we, where we think that the humanity of Jesus did not experience all the emotional difficulties that you and I understand in our emotional experiences. There was a very, very real dread that grew in him as the cross approached. It culminated, of course, that night in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Where, where he sweat blood, literally, in dread of what he faced. When he says to them in verse 21, uh, I must go to Jerusalem, and I must suffer many things, and I must be killed, we should not think of that as he just sort of dispassionately said that, yeah, you know what, I've got to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die, but I'll be resurrected, and all's good. The closer he gets to the cross, the more the dread builds within him. It's something he must do. He came to die. He knew it. He knows it. But that doesn't mean there is not associated with it tremendous emotion. Why do you think Jesus gets alone to pray so much? It's God. Why does God pray? Well, God doesn't pray. The God-man prays. Because he knows that he, in a very real sense, is, is dependent upon the Spirit of God to accomplish the mission that he has been sent in the world to do. And so he goes where you can only go for the strength necessary to do what you have been called to do. He goes to the Father in prayer. So we find Jesus often slipping away to pray. I would like to suggest to you as the cross draws nearer, you find him slipping away to pray even more. And that's what he's doing here. Luke is very explicit about this. Luke chapter 9, verse 28, same account, transfiguration. It says they went up onto the mountain to pray, for Jesus to pray. To pray. And while he was praying, Luke says, verse 29, he was transfigured. And a heavenly voice spoke to him. Why the transfiguration? First, to encourage Jesus as he faced the cross. To encourage Jesus as he faced the cross. We'll explore this more next week when we come back to look at what the Father has to say to him. But there's a second reason. Arguably, maybe more important. It is to, to fortify the staggering faith of the disciples in the Messiahship of Jesus. Their, their world has been turned up, upside down. And, and, you know, they've been with him now for quite a while, right? And he has a, like a regular habit of turning their world upside down. But he, but he has turned it upside down now in a way that they are having great difficulty processing. 
He's going to come back to this again. And in fact, they're going to be talking about it now with some regularity among themselves. What does he mean? I know it's harder for us to enter into that, right? We're on the backside of the cross. We look back. We got the end of the story. It's all clean and neat. So we're going to work at it a little bit to see it from their point of view. He has just told them he is going to die. They are devastated, absolutely devastated by that news. They are so devastated that Peter would take him aside, right, and rebuke him. God forbid it, Lord. Not a good strategy, but that's what Peter would do. Furthermore, Jesus has gone to, to say, and, and following me is not going to be an easy entrance into the kingdom. In fact, just the opposite. You are going to suffer. You're going to take up your cross and follow me. They're staggered, absolutely staggered by all this. If Messiah is going to die, then how will he conquer and rule? And conquer and rule is what has been on their minds for a very long time. Okay, so that takes us uh, to... That first tantalizing mystery, which I'm calling uh, describing the indescribable. I think the first tantalizing mystery, tantalizing mystery here, is the the indescribable nature of this event. Some of you standing here will not die until you see me transfigured. Verse one, six days later. Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves, it says. What mountain? Again, there's a number of different options. I think the best option is Mount Hermon, which lies in the northern end of the district of Caesarea Philippi. It is the highest mountain. I think he took them there, maybe not necessarily to the summit, 9,200 feet, this time of year, it would be cold and potentially snowy, but you don't have to go all the way to the top to go up a high mountain, and that is a high mountain. So I think he took them up into the heights of Mount Hermon. Again, we're, we're thankful to Luke's gospel, because Luke indicates they spent the night there on the mountain. He says they, were, they slept, they were overcome by sleep in Luke 9.32. Luke 9.37 says they came down the next day. So they spent the night on the mountain. And while there, they experienced a camping trip of a lifetime. huh? Camping trip of a lifetime. As I say, they never got over it. Peter writes about it near the end of his life. It was read for us this morning, 2 Peter chapter 1. Right? We were there, he says. And yet we have the word made more sure, the word of God. So there, on this mountain, something indescribable happened. He was transfigured, verse 2, before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. While he was praying, Luke tells us, he was transformed. 
The Greek word uh, metamorpho is, um, we get the English word metamorphosis. A metamorphosis happened while he was praying. The word means to, to be changed in form or to be transformed. Kind of the old word is transfigured. It's not part of our standard vocabulary. You don't talk about that so much. But that's the, that's the kind of the Bible word we use. One, uh, one man writes, and I think writes well here, he says the, the word connotates not just a change externally visible, but one that proceeds from the inside and changes the whole person. Proceeds from the inside and changes the whole person. Interestingly, the, uh, the uh, same uh, verb is used over in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 where it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transfigured. Interesting, huh? But be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove that the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and, and perfect. So just like the meditation upon the, the Word of God is used of the Spirit of God to transform His people. Jesus is here transformed. Now exactly what happened, we don't know. Exactly what happened here, we don't, we don't know. Luke again, he says that while Jesus was appearing, uh, praying rather, the appearance of His face became different. Thanks, Luke. The appearance of his face became different. And, and his clothes became white and gleaming. Mark, he, he adds a little bit. He says that his clothes became radiant and exceedingly white, like no launderer on earth can whiten them. Now, isn't that an interesting way to describe it? Whiter than OxyClean, you know? That's what Mark says. So we're, we're really dependent on Matthew here. He, he actually gives a little more insight into what happened on that mountain. His face shone like the sun. His garments became as white as light. Now, these are, he's not communicating a reflection. It's not that Jesus' face reflected or his clothes reflected light. They produced it. They were the, the light source. Intense light. Blinding light. So I call it the describing the indescribable. You just get the sense here that they are scratching around looking for human words, analogies, to, to try to describe the indescribable. To, to try to, to speak about something that lies outside of their human experience. And yours. Now, when I, when I read this, I, I can't help but uh, think of other places in Scripture where we get similar descriptions. And I think it's worth uh, doing that. So I'm going to take you back to uh, Acts. Actually, not back, uh, forward. To Acts chapter 22. The gospel writers here, they, they, they describe Jesus as, as emanating a very intense light. 
So in Acts chapter 22, it's just one of several places in the book of Acts where, where the Apostle Paul describes his encounter with the ascended Lord Jesus Christ, right? This is on the road to Damascus. This is Paul's conversion. This is Paul, persecutor of the church, uh, set on a mission to, to arrest and, and detain and, and uh, punish and, and even execute those who were following what he believed to be a heretical offshoot of Judaism, a danger to Judaism. And he encounters the ascended Jesus Christ. Verse 6, but it happened, Paul's first person narrative here, but it happened that as I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime, and by the way, a noontime on the road to Damascus is not a cloudy day. Okay? It's hot. And the sun is out, and it's hot. So, noontime, I'm, I'm on my way approaching Damascus, and a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. It just gives you an idea. I mean, you're in full sun, and a, and a very bright light. So, it has to be way lighter than the, than the prevailing intensity of the, of the Middle Eastern sun. And I fell to the ground. And I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light, to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, get up and go into Damascus, and there you will be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. But since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. Revelation chapter 1, we find John's description of the ascended Christ. John is on the Isle of Patmos, because of the testimony of the Lord, that is, he has been banished to this little rocky island. There he receives a credible vision, which he is to pass on. And he describes here in chapter 1 the, the resurrected Christ and ascended Christ. Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. Having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe reaching to the, to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. And his hair, excuse me, his head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. You ever seen the uh, ascended Lord Jesus Christ? No, you haven't. No, you haven't. If you saw the ascended Lord Jesus Christ, your retinas would be burned. You come into the presence 
of the full, unshielded glory, you will be undone. There was a veil in the temple that separated the ark because the glory of God dwelt there. You cannot see me and live. What did they see on that mountain? They got a glimpse, just a glimpse of the glory of the ascended Jesus Christ. Just a glimpse. Unshielded by his humanity. And it came to them as, a, as an intense, bright, powerful light, unlike anything they'd ever experienced, beyond what they could describe. What did they see? They saw a glimpse of the of the pre a picture of the premature coming, second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, when he comes again. It's not going to be meek and lowly. It's not going to be on, a, on, a, on the foal of a donkey. It's not going to be to suffer and die. It is going to be with, with a splendor and a glory that, that radiates forth from him with such power and intensity that people will fall on their face as a dead man in his presence. And he gave them just a peek. Just a peek. What did they see on that mountain? They saw a, a glimpse, a, a revelation of the, of the essential glory of the second person of the triune Godhead. Undiminished glory. They must have been stunned. Luke says they're just waking up. I don't know whether it's the light that woke them up. It doesn't say. But they're, but they're waking up, and, and this is there. And they're, you know, here's the picture. They're, they're rubbing the sleepy seeds out of their eyes. And, and they see this. And then it doesn't end there because, uh, verse 3, Behold! Like, check it out. Listen to this. You won't believe this. Moses and Elijah appeared to him, talking to him. Oh, yeah, Moses and Elijah. You know, they show up all the time. <laughs> right? Well, Moses and Elijah, behold, pay attention, listen up, do not miss it. Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Now, now the questions really start to come. Right? Wait, wait, Moses, I read about him. Didn't he die on Mount Nebo at the, at the end of, uh, of Deuteronomy chapter 34? Yep. You got it right. He did. Huh. By the way, uh, that's just a, just a kind of a by the way, but uh, it just illustrates, I think, the, the reality that death uh, means that you don't pass out of existence. Right? Moses died, yes. Moses is here. 
talking to him now. Moses didn't pass out of existence when he died. By the way, how, do, how, um, how did they know it was Moses and Elijah? Did you ever think about that? Hmm. You know, because they didn't have, um, they didn't have digital cameras in those days. So how did they know? Beats me. They don't tell us. But they know. Maybe they saw the statue of Moses, the lawgiver, you know, holding the tablets of law. Now, how did they know? We don't know. But they're pretty clear about who they saw. And why Moses and Elijah? Why Moses and Elijah? Well, I, I think maybe I've got some ideas on this one. So let, let me offer these uh, to you. I think, I think two possibilities and maybe even a combination of them. I kind of like the combo plate uh, this morning, so I'm going to go for both. Okay, uh, number one. Number one, why Moses and Elijah? I think Moses and Elijah because they, they represent the law and the prophets. They represent the law and the prophets. Moses, uh, you know, it's the law of Moses, right? He is the great lawgiver to the nation of Israel. Elijah is, uh, is, if anyone embodied the prophetic ministry at a time when the, when the nation's spiritual health was in peril, it was Elijah. So, so he, is a, he is a very um, preeminent prophet. So it may well be, and I kind of like this, that, that between Moses and Elijah, what you have is the law and the prophets. And if you have the law and the prophets, you have the entire Old Testament, right? You have the entire Old Testament. And, and so I think they point to the reality that, that Jesus came not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17, it actually says that. So I think, I think that idea is bound up in this. But I think there's more. As I said, it could be one or the other. And this morning I like both. So, so here's the other. It's they both appear in Scripture as forerunners of Messiah. Both Moses and Elijah appear in the, in the Scriptures as, as a forerunner of Messiah. What do I mean by that? Well, to take you back to Deuteronomy in chapter 18. In Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15, God says uh, through Moses, he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. Down to verse 18. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. This is God now talking to Moses. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So there is a, there is a prophecy given of, a, of another prophet to come who will speak to the nation much like Moses spoke to the nation. 
And this became very much a, a part of, of a Jewish understanding. And so if you'll go back to the New Testament now, to John chapter 1, you can see this. Because this is when John the Baptist begins his, his public ministry. Verse 19, chapter 1 of John's Gospel. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. The prophet. There is one coming before Messiah called the prophet who will speak to the nation to prepare them for the return or for the, for the coming of their king. One like unto Moses. Elijah is also a forerunner to the king. And for that, we go to Malachi chapter 4. Verse 5. Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5. Behold, I am going to send you, send, excuse me, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. I will send to you Elijah the prophet. They correctly understood their own scriptures to be teaching them that before Messiah would come one like unto Moses called the prophet and one either like unto Elijah or Elijah, and we'll talk more about that maybe next week or beyond. And so, what does all that mean? I don't know. I suggest one thing to maybe you can just sort of think about. In uh, Revelation chapter 11, there are two witnesses. We won't go there. I'm not going to spend the time in it. You go there on your own. But there are two witnesses who, um, who do some miracles in preparation for the return of a king, for the coming of Messiah, that bear a pretty close resemblance to the works of Moses and Elijah. Do with it what you like. But here on the mountain, It's not one like Moses and one like Elijah. It is Moses and it is Elijah. And I think it speaks about the fulfillment of the, of the law and the prophets. I think it speaks about the forerunners of Messiah. It is, it is two witnesses, right? Everything will be verified in the mouth of two witnesses. Here are the two witnesses. Speaking to Jesus. And what are they talking about? Well, Luke fills us in. 
they are talking about his atoning death. They're talking to him about going to Jerusalem. It's called his departure, but it's going to Jerusalem to die. That's what they're talking to him about. Okay. So, get the picture here. You've been deeply um, undone by Jesus' latest announcements. You're struggling with doubt about whether he's Messiah, that this is exactly what you signed up for, what's going on here. He takes you up on the mountain. He peels back his flesh. You see his glory as it will appear in his kingdom. Two witnesses, Moses and Elijah, uh, appear talking with him. They're, they're talking about his upcoming death. And so you say... Hey, it would be really good if I were to make a few tents for you to stay in, you and Moses and Elijah. It, it, it's really quite interesting. Peter said, verse 4, to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. It's a great word. It, it is good for us. It is a pleasant. It is pleasant for us to be here. It is profitable. It is profitable for us. It's desirable for us to be here. That's the semantic range of that word. Semantic range. Peter said, Lord, it is, uh, it's, a, it's a good thing for us to be here. If you like, if you wish, I will make three tabernacles here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. You've got to love Peter. But actually, I, I, uh, as the more I've thought about this, uh, the more I think that, that Peter is, is not just um, running off his mouth. I mean, he is, but, but there's something behind it, something going on here. So let me, the time that I've got left, let's see if I can put it together for you. Peter is offering here, he says it's a good thing, it would be a really good thing, Lord, if you want for me to, to build some tabernacles shelters, huts for you and your guests. Now, they're, they're high in the mountain. So, so Peter is not offering to build tents, as you and I know tents. There's just not a lot of building materials up there. What he's talking about is, is and it fits within the, the, the range of this word, what he's talking about is, is huts, booths, tabernacles, Little, little shelters made from some branches, you know, some sticks and some branches kind of dra draped over them. Something that, that Israel was called to do every year as one of the, the three required annual festivals of the Jewish calendar. The Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. It occurs in, in late September, early October every year, about six months before Passover. When we were in Israel last fall, everywhere you would go, you would see these booths, these tabernacles. And, and, and the, the average Jewish family would, would take one meal a day underneath this, this sort of temporary shelter. 
the purpose of the, of the construction of the booths that, that God required of his people every year was, was twofold. It was, number one, for them to, to sort of remember and commemorate their time in the wilderness where they wandered and they had no permanent home. It's to, so it's to remind them. It's to look backwards into their history and God's continual provision and sustenance of them in 40 years of wandering. But it looks forward as well to the time when they will be in Messiah's kingdom and they will live under his, his beneficent and promised rule. So it's a, it's a feast and a festival like, like the others that looks back and looks forward. And, and in, I won't turn you in, but in, in Zechariah chapter 14, it's very, very clear. The prophet there speaks about the, the celebration of the Feast of Booze, and it has a very eschatological, forward-looking, future component and fulfillment to it. It is, it is part of the kingdom preparations. So here it is. It's, uh, it's about six months before Passover which puts it at about the right time of year for the Feast of Tabernacles. Peter is offering to, to build some booths for, for Jesus and his guests so that they might celebrate tabernacles. And he says, and notice he says, if you wish. And, and I think what Peter is communicating here, and the more I think about it, the more I think it's true. Is what, he is, what he is communicating here is he has, he has seen the, 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 the glory of Christ in his kingdom. And so I think what he is, what he is suggesting here, understanding that the close tie between tabernacles and, and the kingdom... Is, is what he is saying here is that in the transfiguration, right? We're not going to taste death until we see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. We now see the Son of Man in his glory. And, and Moses and Elijah here, let's build the tabernacles because the kingdom now has got to be right here. Right here. Luke says in Luke 9.33, Peter did not realize what he was saying. I don't think that his period didn't realize that he was, you know, was kind of running off of the mouth and saying something stupid. I don't believe that's what's being communicated. I don't think Peter realized what he was saying. That is, that, that he was saying to Jesus, bring in the kingdom. And forget all that cross stuff that you're talking about. All, all that stuff six days ago, that's like a bad memory. Let us put that away. Now we're back on track, Jesus. Kingdom. Kingdom. What Peter doesn't realize is there cannot be no kingdom without a cross. Cross must come first. No kingdom without a cross. It's impossible to, to fulfill the the. the typological significance of the Feast of Tabernacles outside of the cross. It's got to come. Earlier, right, Jesus gives Peter the most severe rebuke any individual in the New Testament receives. Get behind me, Satan. Next week, 
we're going to see that Peter's idea of, of building tabernacles is going to draw a response from God the Father that is going to absolutely terrify them. They're still struggling with the idea of a crucified Messiah. That's what's going on. Jesus takes them on the mountain. He gives them a, a dramatic reminder that he is indeed the one who has been prophesied long ago. He's going to bring the kingdom, the kingdom of peace and prosperity and righteousness. But not without going to the cross first. And see, sometimes you and I, that's, we, we kind of get into that same thing. We get into that same sort of dilemma. What I mean by that is, as our faith begins to, to waver, we're, we're living in a world that's really bad, don't you think? It's kind of really messed up. And it, and it seems like sin is winning. Doesn't it, doesn't it seem that way to you? It seems like it gets worse and worse and worse all over the world. There seems to be no end to the, to the evil that man is capable of. And we want Messiah's kingdom to come. We want Messiah's kingdom to come. Amen? But we got to wait. We got to wait. And it's in the waiting that the faith begins to, to falter. We need a glimpse of the glorified Christ. Not the meek and mild. The returning glorified Christ who will make this world right when he comes. In the meantime, we hang on. We hang on. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for causing to be recorded for us this most amazing event. To see Jesus glorified. To see the, the glory of the second person of the triune Godhead. It strengthened the faith of your disciples in that first century. They never got over it. May it strengthen ours now. Whatever troubles afflict us, let us never lose sight of the fact that for us, Jesus now sits at the right hand of the Father. The horror of the cross is, is already the good news in which we can rejoice. Let us not be downtrodden by circumstances. May you fix our eyes on that glorious one. Often the scripture gives a benediction for God's people. Let me leave you with one now drawn from 2 Corinthians chapter 13. And finally, 
brethren, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Amen.